Thanks, Brooke. Two things I forgot to say. First off, we do have... Thank you. Uh, we do have a new uh, special music schedule on the back table. So if you are here uh, and you're worried that you might be put on the special music schedule, look to see if you're on there. And then, then you'll know. If you're not here, make sure to pick one up. Or else we might, you know, just sneak you in. Uh, and then be praying for uh, Sandy and Frankie Mountain. Uh, Frankie was down in Omaha this past week. Uh, he's got a fractured vertebrae in his neck. Uh, but he al- they also found a mass. Uh, and he's got stage 4 bone cancer. Uh, so be praying. He started chemo a couple days ago. Um, and they're looking at what the next uh, months hold for treatment for him. He's in really good spirits. Uh, he said he had a great time down at the Methodist Hospital in Omaha. They treated him right. I mean, he said he couldn't have a better deal down there. They do everything for you. I won't tell you all that they did for him. Uh, but he loved it. Uh, but be praying for them in this journey ahead. My kids opened up Christmas presents yesterday morning. Have the Curtis kids opened up their presents? No. You're waiting. Uh, when are you planning on opening your presents? Oh, yes! I have power! <laughs> so they're going to be sitting in the back row, squirming, hoping this sermon doesn't last long. And little did they know that as I was praying about this sermon, I had a word from the Lord. That I need to preach until Jesus comes again. <laughs> the world waited for over 6,000 years for Jesus to come the first time. We don't know when he's coming again. They're saying, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Before Jesus came, there were prophecies leading up to his birth. Um, But even though there were prophecies, people still didn't quite understand those prophecies. There were times when it was clear, and they said, hey, the Messiah is going to come this way, in this sort of experience experiential thing and all that sort of stuff but they still scratched their heads because they couldn't connect the dots there were other prophecies that were made about jesus coming that were about jesus but the people at that time had no idea that it was about jesus isaiah chapter 7 is one of those prophecies so if you've got your bible if you could turn with me to isaiah chapter 7 isaiah chapter 7 verses 1 to 17 is what we're going to read this morning. Isaiah 7, verses 1 to 17. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Rezin of Aram and Pekah, son of Ramalia, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. 
So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son Shearjah-Sub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field. Say to him, Be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Don't lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and of the sons of Ramalia. Aram, Ephraim, and Ramalia's sons have plotted your ruin, saying, Let us invade Judah, let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves and make the son of Tabil king over it. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Ramalia's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He'll bring the king of Assyria. First off, if God ever asks you for a sign, ask him for the sign. Second, will you pray with me before we start? Lord, thank you for the privilege to come before your throne and worship you as king of kings and lord of lords to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we are loved by the creator of the universe because you gave the ultimate act of love, sending your only son to die on the cross for our sins that we might know you. Lord, thank you that we can know you. And we don't have to go through a priest. We don't have to bring sacrifices. We don't have to jump through all these hoops. We can just come to you as our savior, our redeemer, and find help and hope and everything else we need. Lord, thank you for that. Lord, today I ask that we would see you better and understand you better as we study your word, as we look at the prophecy of God with us. Lord, as I'm up here, I ask that I would decrease and that you would increase. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Thanks, Father. Amen. Isaiah chapter 7 is a very dark place in Israel's history. The northern kingdom, uh, back after Solomon was king over Israel, his, in, during the reign of his son, the kingdom split. You have the northern kingdom, which is ten tribes, named Israel, and the southern kingdom, which is two tribes, named Judah. The northern kingdom, Israel, has completely forsaken their God. They say they're worshiping him, but they are not, and they're taking on all the gods of the nations around, and they're doing horrible atrocities. They've turned their back so much on God that they have allied themselves with ungodly nations in order to attack the southern kingdom, their brothers and sisters down there, the supposedly godly nation. The southern kingdom, as I said, known as Judah. Judah has the temple in Jerusalem. Judah has the priesthood. Judah has all the sacrificial system 
they supposedly are the ones who follow God, and they make a big show of following God. The previous two kings before Ahaz, Uzziah and Jotham, were both good kings that tried to lead Judah into following God correctly. However, uh, they didn't quite do as good a job as they might want to because the people of Judah, though they worshipped God, they still sacrificed on the shrines around the area. They didn't go to the temple. They took the worship practices of the nations around in order to worship the one true God. And God said, no, I gave you how you're supposed to worship me. Follow the rules. But they didn't. Because they did not follow the rules, judgment is coming. Part of that judgment is Ahaz taking the throne in Israel. And he's not a good king. 2 Kings chapter 16 talks about Ahaz. 2 Kings 16, 2-4. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. Here, let me throw this up for you. There we go. Unlike David and his father, he did not do right what was right in the eyes of the Lord, his God. He followed the ways of the kings of Israel and even sacrificed his son in the fire, engaging in the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He offered sacrifices and burnt incense at the high places, on the hilltops, and every spreading tree. He did horrible things, Ahaz did. His dad was good, Ahaz was bad. He leads Israel in further turning away from their God, and because of his leadership, because of the spiritual condition of the Israelites, and the rest of Judah, the northern kingdom, allied with Aram, tries to take over. And Ahaz is scared. Not only is Ahaz scared, but Judah is scared. And God tells them, hey, don't be scared. I got the, I've got it covered. And since you don't believe me, Ahaz, since you've never followed me a day in your life, ask me for a sign, and I'll prove to you that I've got your back. I've got you covered. And Ahaz looks at Isaiah, the voice of God, and doesn't ask for a sign. He tries to word it in this nice, religious tone of like, oh, I don't want to put the Lord, my God, to a test. Hogwash. He doesn't care about God. And since he doesn't care about God, he doesn't ask for a sign because he doesn't care. And the sign that God gives him says, hey, a child is going to be born whose name is God with us, Emmanuel. And in that first two years of that child's birth, Israel and Aram are both going to be laid to waste. But a worse time is coming, Ahaz, because you have just refused to trust the God who is going to care for you. The God who has offered to be with you. The God with us. You have refused him, and therefore bad times are coming. Ahaz doesn't care. He says, thanks God for telling me you got my back. Thank you for giving me this sign. I'm going to totally ignore it. I'm turning to Assyria for help. I don't want God with us. I want the pagans over there. Assyria is going to come in, completely annihilate the northern kingdom of Israel, and he's going to pay, they're going to pave the way for the Babylonians then to come in and take over the southern kingdom of Judah. God says, hey, Ahaz, Israel, I will be the God who is with you. And Ahaz says, nah, no. Don't want it. Fast forward 800 years. An angel appears to Mary. Later, Joseph tells them that Mary is going to have a son. 
who's going to be called Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And Matthew records something very interesting in Matthew 1, 22 to 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Small phrase from a couple hundred years ago in the words of Isaiah, translating to Jesus. Such a small phrase, God with us, but so powerful. Let's look at that phrase. Let's look at God. To understand the significance of God with us, we must understand who God is. If we look at Isaiah 7, something might stand out. Then the Come on. Did you uh, click off of Proclaim? You got back? Okay, there we go. Thank you. There we go. The Lord. The Lord says to Isaiah, your translation might do what my translation does. The Lord is in all caps. When translation does that, it is indicating that the original language has the short form of the actual name of God, Yahweh. Out of respect, the, the Hebrews never wrote Yahweh out. They did short and firm because they didn't want that holy name to be desecrated on physical paper. Translations, modern translations, most of them keep that respect going. And instead of putting God's name on there, they put the Lord, but they put it in all caps to say, hey, this is what it's referring to. It's referring to the holy name of God. Yahweh is the covenant name of God. It is referred to when God is calling to Moses out of the burning bush. In Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 to 14, Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What's his name? Then what shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. This is my name, Moses. I am. I am. The word Yahweh. One's name at this time describes who someone was. If we put that to our time period, if I was a kid, instead of being named Peter, I should have been named he who yells at everyone and talks a lot. <laughs> should have been my name. Thankfully, my parents were much nicer, and they tried to name me for my sanctification, hoping that I will turn into something. My name is Peter Timothy, a rock that honors God. The names for Peter Timothy. By stating the simple phrase, I am who I am, God is describing who he is. It's not just a name. It is a description of his character. He is the covenant God who existed before all things. The verb form that is used in this Hebrew, I'm, I'm going to geek out, I'm sorry, but it, it, it's, it's, it's not just something that exists at a point in time. The, the original language can do all sorts of things with their verbs. But it's not something that exists at a point of time. It is something that always is, is the verb form. So God is saying, I am that I am. I have always been what I've always been. I will be what I always will be. I am the God who exists, be all for all things, after all things. This is who I am, the eternal God who exists. He is also the covenant God who created all things. Not only is the he can the Hebrew be translated, I am that I am, 
I was that I was, I will be what I will be, but it can be translated, I have caused to be what I caused to be. There's a state of being there, but also a causal action. I am making this happen. He is the God who created everything. Not only is he the covenant God who exists to be all for all things, but who created all things, but he is the covenant God who chose to be with his creation in a devoted, intimate way. In a few verses in Exodus chapter 3, after God says, I am who I am, he looks to Moses and says, hey Moses, you tell the Israelites that I've seen them, I've heard them, and I will accomplish the promise I made to them. In fact, I'm going to accomplish it by being with them from Egypt to the promised land. He's not just the God who floats up above everything and looks down on his creation that he has set into motion, but he is the God who's chosen to come down and be with his people in a devoted, intimate way. The covenant God. Well, after learning about God, we have to discuss us, which isn't as nice as talking about God. Let's look at Ahaz. Isaiah chapter 7, verses 12 to 13. Ahaz says to God, I'm not going to ask for a sign. I'm not going to put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah says, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Ahaz looks at God and says, Hey, thanks for the help, but I got this. I don't trust you. God, I don't. What? Eh. That's what's supposed to happen. I don't trust you, God. I don't. I'm going to help you out. I got it myself. So Ahaz goes from the presence of God and makes a deal with the Assyrians, the people who hate God. That's what we as humans do, naturally. God says, I have everything you need. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to protect you. And I'm going to prove myself to you as being that God who always exists, who created all things, and who wants to be with you. Think about Adam and Eve in the garden. They're standing there in the garden, looking back and forth between God and the fruit. God and the fruit. God and the fruit. Yeah, you know, God said don't eat the fruit. God says I'm going to provide everything you need. God says I've already provided everything you need. They look at God, they look at the fruit, they look at God, they look at the fruit, and they say, you know, sorry God, we have to provide for ourselves. Because deep down inside, we don't trust you. Flip through all the pages of the Bible, and we'll see story after story of humans in a tough spot. And when faced with a decision between trusting God, who said, I'm your all in all, or trusting in themselves, consistently, humanity, throughout the pages of Scripture, choose themselves. We could look at our own lives. We go through a hard time. And what's our normal first response when going through a hard time? Is our normal first response to fall on our face before the covenant God who existed be all for all things, created all things, and desires to be with us in a devoted and intimate way. Is that our first response? Normally as humans, it's not. We turn to the Assyrians in our lives. We try to just figure out how to do it ourselves, and we make a mess of it, just like Ahaz made a mess of it. This isn't just true when we're going through a hard time. Because when we're living through a hard time, we are just responding how we've trained ourselves to respond when life is going easy. 
When we're going through a hard time, we're, we're going through reactions, not conscious decisions normally. So we do what we've trained ourselves to do consistently. We as humans, even those who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, we consistently give God the leftovers in our life. We consistently do. We say, oh yeah, I should go to church. Oh yeah, I should pray and read my Bible every day. Oh yeah, I need to spend time with God. I know all this is true, but there's so much else to do with my life. There's so many other things that are pulling at my time, and God will understand. God will understand if I don't go to church today. God will understand if I don't take the time to pray to him and read my Bible today, spend that intimate time. God will understand. And yeah, he will. We're not legalists here. All that has nothing to do with our salvation. But in that moment, when we were saying we would rather do all these other things than spending time with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we were saying what Ahaz did. We're saying, thanks God, I got this. I don't need you today. I have more important things to do today than spending time with you. Jesus said it rather more pointedly in Luke chapter 9, verses 57 to 62. He's walking along the road, and a man says to him, I'm going to follow you wherever you go. Hey, great, nice, nice phrase. And Jesus says, hey, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But that man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I'm going to follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for, the service, for service in the kingdom of God. There's some things we wouldn't hear Jesus normally say. We wouldn't think he would say. But Jesus is looking to these disciples who say, I'm going to follow you to the end of time. And he says, what is your priority in your life? What is your priority? Too often our priority in life, though we say with our mouth, we will follow you, our actions do not show it. Jesus said, yes, you want to follow me, but is following me more important than everything else in your life? Or is your work? Or is your family? Is your finances? Is it your cars? Is it your sports? Is it all these other things? What is more important, Jesus says? Unfortunately, too often, our priority is not God. And so when hard times come, we turn to the Syrians in our life instead of the covenant God who existed before all things, created all things, and wants to be with us in a devoted, intimate way. This truth is tied to salvation. Instead of turning to the one God, the only God who can save us, we try to do it ourselves. And we say, we don't trust you. I got to do something. So I work at it. I recite my prayers. I attend church. I do, 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 do. But unfortunately, in all that doing, we don't do anything that will actually amount to anything for our salvation. Only God can do it. Only God can do it. And he says, I will do it. 
We've looked at God. We've looked at us. Now let's look at a preposition. With is a preposition. It's a small phrase, small word, but very powerful, connecting both God and us. God with us. 2,000 years ago, Jesus was born of a virgin Mary. Mary was just a human who decided that she could trust God, unlike Ahab. And so, in a stable alone, Jesus was born, God with us. He grew up experiencing the hard life that we have experienced. He grew up being tempted with all the temptations that we have been tempted with, but without sin. He knew death, he knew heartache, and then he died. The most miserable death imaginable. And why in the world did he do that? So he could be with us. He died to have a relationship with us. The covenant God who existed before all things, who created all things, wanted to be with us in a devoted, intimate way. And that's why Jesus died. When we turn to him in faith, declaring that we cannot save ourselves, we realize this sin is separating us from God, that we need Jesus and Jesus alone. He saves us. Wipes our sins away because he paid the penalty for it on the cross. And he ushers us into a personal relationship that lasts for all of eternity. The same God who rescued Israel out of slavery declares that he'll be with us as we struggle with the bondage of addictions. The same God who wept at Lazarus's tomb declares that he will be with us in mourning. The same God who was with Joseph as Joseph was alone in the bottom of the pit and alone in an Egyptian prison says that he will never leave us or forsake us. The same God who gave Solomon wisdom, David endurance, Paul boldness, Peter assurance, John faithfulness. That same God declares, holding out his hand to us, that he will be with us. So will we reach out and grab that hand? Will we? Will we hold on to that hand tight because we need him and him only in our life? He is everything and he wants to be everything. So is he? The Apostle John wrote in John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or husband's will, but born of God. Praise God that he is with us. Is he with you? Is he with you? Today, as we celebrate his birth, my prayer is that if you have never turned to Jesus in faith, whether you're here or whether you're watching, you've never entered that personal relationship with the God that wants to be with you, but you're still trying to do all these things, 
to, to climb your way up to him. I ask you to let it all go. Let it all go. And fall on your face before Jesus and say, I need you. I trust in you. And when you do, you get to enter that personal relationship with the God that wants to be with you. So do it today. May his birthday be your spiritual birthday. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for wanting to have a relationship with us and doing what it took to bridge that gap between our sinfulness and your holiness, for sending your son to die on the cross, taking our sin on himself, placing his righteousness on us. Lord, that does not make sense. It doesn't. It is not just. But Jesus paid the price. Thank you for that. Lord, I pray that we would remember that every day that we who have placed our faith in you would not live our lives apart from you, but would daily, hourly dive into that relationship that we have with the creator of the universe. That you would be our joy and our peace, our lover. And Lord, that we would take that truth and share it with those around us that others might know the amazingness of God with us. Thanks, Father.